Well, we are now at the end of our study in the book of Deuteronomy. We actually finished up the book uh, last week, and so this week is kind of like a bonus week where we're going to take a single topic and see what the whole book of Deuteronomy says about that topic. And so uh, today will be a little bit different than our previous weeks for a couple of reasons. First, uh, I will actually be using slides this time. And for uh, some of you, I think that's a dream come true. And then for others of you, I'm sure you will be uh, indifferent to it. Uh, So, but hopefully they will be helpful. Uh, And the reason why I have the slides is because today is going to be slightly different for another reason. And that is we're not going to be going through a particular passage and walking through it. Rather, since this is a theology of the heart, we're going to attempt to do systematic theology uh, within the book of Deuteronomy, which means if we want to know about the heart, what we have to do is look at all the passages in the book of Deuteronomy that speak to the heart and see what it says about it. And so that is going to be our method here this morning. And what we want to do with our time today is look at three questions, and hopefully look at the answers to three questions. The first one is, what is the heart? Uh, Because before we get into anything else, we have to know what the heart is. And Deuteronomy has a great deal to say about the heart. Uh, Deuteronomy and the law is not all legalistic uh, regulations, uh, but the Lord always was concerned about the heart. So we need to look at what is the heart. We need to know then after that, Once we have an idea about what the heart is, we need to understand what does Deuteronomy require of the heart. And so we'll we'll look at that. And then finally is how can this requirement be fulfilled? And so that's what we will be looking at uh, this morning. And so if you get lost, just have this roadmap uh, in your mind. So let's jump in then to the heart. What is the heart? And what we'll do uh, is basically the word heart shows up a whole bunch of times in the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, you can categorize those a little bit. Um, and so that's what we'll do. So let's look at the first one. The first one is just this, that the heart uh, is where memories reside. This is where we remember things. This is where we think things. So uh, you can write these down. We're going to be going through these fairly quickly. So if you are a fast page turner, feel free to follow along, uh, but otherwise you can listen. But Deuteronomy 4.9 says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And so what we're seeing here is that when you forget things, they are departing from your heart. And so the heart is where those things are stored. It's where you remember things. Uh, We know that the heart, secondly, we're going to go through these, uh, it may be melted by fear. So the heart is where you are going to be feeling fear. So let's look at Deuteronomy 1.28. Deuteronomy 1.28. And this was in that historical prologue where they're describing the... um, the report after the spies came back from the land. And it says, where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have the sons of the Anakim here. And so when the heart melts, it means your courage has left. The heart is where you feel the courage and it's also where you feel 
the fear, it can be melted in that way. If you go to Deuteronomy 20, verses 2 to 3, we have something similar. Only this time it's looking forward to the time when Israel would go into the land. Deuteronomy 20, verses 2 to 3. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. Deuteronomy 20, verse 8, if you jump down just a little bit further. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And so the heart is where your courage is, and if it's melted away by fear, then your courage has uh, departed, it's left. And then this next one is really important. It's the heart is where your internal dialogue takes place. Every single one of us throughout the day have kind of conversations with ourselves. Uh, we think things, right? And, and we kind of discuss things uh, within our heart. And what Deuteronomy says is the heart is where that takes place. So notice Deuteronomy 7.17. Deuteronomy 7.17 If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? And so here it's speaking to this idea of doubt. You have these doubts in your heart and you're having this conversation with yourself. And what's important is that this is not necessarily external, right? You're saying this in your heart. No one else has to know that you're saying this, but this is this internal dialogue that takes place uh, within you. And the other thing is, this really is, your truest self. These are the things that you are really thinking um, and uh, considering. And if that doesn't match the outside, then you've got a facade. Deuteronomy uh, 8.17, so flip the chapter. Beware lest you say in your heart. Okay, so once again, you have something going on in your heart. My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And so he was concerned that the people of Israel would go in, they would defeat the, their enemies because the Lord had given them into their hands, and then they would be lifted up, they would be um, arrogant, and they would say within their heart, maybe they don't say it out loud, but they say it in their heart that, oh yeah, I got, my, I, I got this by myself. I'm the one who did it. And so that's that internal dialogue. Deuteronomy 9.4, if you go a little bit further, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Deuteronomy 18, 21. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? In terms of how do you discern between um, true prophets and, and false prophets. And so you're having this internal dialogue within you. And then finally, Deuteronomy 29, 18 to 19. And it says, Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. We get two uh, 
observations here about the heart. One is that, again, you can bless yourself in the heart and say certain things, thinking certain things. And then also, you can have a stubbornness of the heart. Even though your heart is not pliable, uh, you are going to continue to have this dialogue that says, I shall be safe. So the heart is where your internal dialogue takes place. And what we'll do is by the time we come down to the end of this, we'll give a definition of the heart. And that way we can have that as we move forward. So the heart is where or the, heart, the heart may be deceived and confused. So go to Deuteronomy eleven sixteen. Deuteronomy eleven sixteen, And this one also is very significant. Uh, there's, there's two under this heading that are very significant. Deuteronomy eleven sixteen. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. So notice what's going on here. The deception of the heart is producing something. It's, re- it's producing a particular response, which is turning away. So the things that happen in the heart then find their way outside of the heart in your actions and the things that you do. So the turning away was because your heart was deceived. And so this will be significant. So go over to Deuteronomy 28, 20, uh, 28 and we'll see the, the same thing where the condition of the heart finds its expression in the externals. The Lord, this is speaking of the curses that will come upon them if they uh, uh, disobey the Lord. So the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness, and the ESV says conf- confusion of mind, but the word there is heart, a confusion of heart. And notice what the result of that is there in that verse. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. So why is it that you would grope? Well, it's because the Lord has given you a confusion of the heart. The confusion of the heart is what is producing the groping. So once again, what goes on in the heart finds its expression outside. Jerry says something like, uh, what's in the heart will get out on you. Uh, and so that's the idea here. And so we keep on going with this, and the heart then is also where you experience joy and gladness uh, and dread. So you have all these emotions that you feel within your heart. So Deuteronomy twenty-eight forty-seven, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, but because of the abundance of all things. So you've got this joyfulness and this gladness of heart. And then 28.67, in the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And at evening you shall say, if only it were morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel, feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. So this is where you're experiencing your emotions. The same is true for anger. Anger is, being, is described in Deuteronomy as being hot or heated within your heart or with regard to your heart. And you can write down Deuteronomy 19, 4 to 6. And we'll move on then to the next one. Uh, Which is arrogance. This is also experienced in the heart as well. It's described as the heart being lifted up. So Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 14 Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. 
lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. So once again, you also have this idea of when something happens in the heart, something happens on the outside. So when your heart gets lifted up, what happens? You forget the Lord your God and all the blessings that he's given you. When you're arrogant, you forget God. Deuteronomy 17, 19 to 20. This is speaking of the king. And this also speaks to why scripture is important. And we'll come back to that idea in a little bit. But Deuteronomy 17, 19 to 20. And this is speaking of the law of God, the scriptures, and the king. So, and it shall be with him, that is the law, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Notice the purpose here, so that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. And so scripture is going to be the antidote to a lifted up heart. We've got another one here. So this one is also significant significant because here the heart can actively turn away. And so what this describes is something of the will. This is not something that is being done to the heart. This is the heart actively doing something. And so go to Deuteronomy 29, 18. 29, 18. It says, beware, lest there be among you a woman, a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. There's a decision being made to forget the Lord and go to these other gods. There is an active will going on within your heart. We keep going. The heart is also where you know things and you are convinced of things. So we've been thinking of the heart as that which experiences emotions and then also that which has an active will involved. And also it's where you know things and you are convinced of things, where you believe things. So Deuteronomy 8.5, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And so when you know something in your heart, I think there's also something of something like, you know this for certain, that when you know it in your heart, you're convinced of its truth. We've got three more here. The heart is the source of either generosity or stinginess. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11, you can turn there. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. So notice what's going on there. If you harden your heart, it means that there's going to be an action or a lack of an action. You're not going to be uh, generous towards your brother. Verse 9, take care lest there be an unworthy thought where in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. 
So notice here what's going on. It starts with the mind. You're thinking something. You've got something in your heart. You have an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, I don't really want to give something to my neighbor because the year of release is coming up. And what that means is that debt is forgiven, whether they pay it back or not. And so if you keep that in mind, you're going to begrudge giving anything to your neighbor. And so notice where it starts. It starts with the thoughts. It starts with the mind, and then it leads to the actions. Whatever is in the heart becomes manifest on the outside. The heart is also the moral center of a person. You can either be wicked of heart or upright of heart. And if you, are, if you have a wicked heart, it means you're also a wicked person. And if you have an upright heart, then you're also an upright person. And so this is the moral center of a person. Deuteronomy 9.5, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land. And so this is the moral center of a person. And then finally, and this one is really important as well, uh, especially as we come to what uh, comes next, the Lord is sovereign over the heart, and he also tests the heart through circumstances. So we'll look at two passages here. The first one I want you to turn to is Deuteronomy 2, 26 through 33. The Lord is sovereign over the heart. 226. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I'll only go by the road. I won't turn aside uh, to the right or to the left. Uh, you can sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot, as the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, and the Moabites, who live in Ar, did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. And then notice what the reason is given for that. It's because the Lord, your God, hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate for his purposes. Notice, so that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And so the Lord works sovereignly over the hearts of mankind in order to accomplish his purposes. And uh, that can step on some toes. But we see this, uh, that the Lord also tests the heart then in Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 3. Sometimes he sends, uh, sometimes he allows false prophets to be in the midst of the congregation of Israel or perhaps false teachers in uh, the church. And he says, in Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 3, that the purpose of that, verse 3, is that the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So the Lord is sovereign over your heart, and he is also sovereign over the circumstances which he uses to test your heart. So let's bring this now to a, uh, a definition then. Because this will be significant for this. This will be important as we take this definition with us into the rest of the book of Deuteronomy. So this is a little bit wordy, um, 
but uh, you can write it down and, and consider it, or I can uh, email you uh, this definition, but I'll read it. The heart is the internal, and I say internal because it's not, it's not what's on the outside. It's the things that happen on the inside of you. It's the internal, we looked at the moral, it's the emotional, so it's where you feel the emotions, and it's the intellectual, that's your thinking, and your volitional, that's your will, it's those uh, decisions that you make. It is all of that, it is the center of a person. And then this part too, it is the truest representation of that person. What you are in the heart is what you are. Whatever goes on in the heart, that's, that's who you are. And sometimes that can be uncomfortable when we actually consider what's going on in our hearts. All right, And then the external actions that we do, the words that we say, these are only expressions. These are only the things, the, the consequences of what's in the heart. And so while the heart truly represents your own thoughts, your own emotions, your own will, at the same time, God is sovereign even over these most intimate parts, or these aspects of your person. So the heart represents what you think, what you do, what you desire, what you feel. And at the same time, God is sovereign over all of those things. So now that we've got that, and, and so this is kind of why George often says that the heart is the mind, the will, and the emotions. He doesn't say that because it's cute, but it's because it's what Scripture teaches. That when you look at how the heart is used in the Bible, you find those, uh, those dynamics uh, within the Scriptures. The heart is all that you are. It's your internal control center. It's all of that. So if that's the case, then what does Deuteronomy require of us? What does Deuteronomy require of the heart? And there's two points here, and we'll look at the first one. But the first one is, Deuteronomy requires that you know who God is and that you act in accordance with that conviction. So let's go to Deuteronomy 4, 35 to 40. Deuteronomy 4, 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence and by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. And then it goes on to, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments. You are to know who God is. And then it says you are to lay that to heart. And what does that mean, laying that to heart? I think it means that you are convinced of the truth of it and therefore you act in accordance with that. You act as if it is true because it is. And so you know who God is, you're convinced of it, and you act like it's true. And then what we come to in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is uh, this, that you love God and store up his word. And this really is the central requirement in the book of Deuteronomy. We, whenever we looked at the general stipulations, we saw that the general stipulations 
basically summarize what is required of the entire law. These are the principles of the law. And we find it expressed uh, most condensed here in the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then there's a second thing here in verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So let's deal with the first one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Given what we've looked at in the previous section, that's pretty encompassing. You're supposed to love God with all of your emotions, all of your thoughts, all of your decisions, all of your morals, everything about who you are, your internal dialogues, your internal conversations that you have with yourself, all of that, that is where you're supposed to love God. And then that will naturally have its effect in your life. That's a high bar. That's a high standard. And then notice in verse 6 as well, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And what does it mean to have God's word on your heart? Again, we've thought about it. We've thought about mind, will, emotions, and everything. If God's word is on your heart, it means that God's word is controlling all of your thoughts, all of your emotions, all of your desires, all of your decisions, everything about who you are, the word of God is the control on that. If you lay that up on your heart. So again, a high standard, and we have this here at Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 6. And then when you go to the end of the general stipulations, in the passage that we read for our scripture reading, in Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13, we have it sandwiched in there. And we have something similar, Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? If there was one thing that the Lord requires of you, what is it? To fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So the same thing. You are supposed to love God and serve God from all of your heart, all of who you are. And this is what Deuteronomy describes as that covenant loyalty. And so if we had to have a summary at this point of what does Deuteronomy require of you, it's this. Deuteronomy requires that you express covenant loyalty to God from the heart. And that requires that you know who God is, that you're convinced of his attributes, who he is, and that you allow his word to control every aspect of your heart uh, in all of its aspects. And the result of that is that you would naturally express obedience and worship to him. So this is the great requirement that Deuteronomy places on the people of Israel and by extension uh, us is that we love God from all of our heart. Now the question is, can we do that? Well, there is a problem and Deuteronomy gives us that problem. Deuteronomy assumes that there is a problem and that that problem uh, is with the heart. Deuteronomy assumes that man has an uncircumcised heart, and we're going to get into what that means. But basically, 
having an uncircumcised heart means you can't fulfill what God requires of you. And that's a bad place to be in. Because if you remember what happens after all of the stipulations in the book of Deuteronomy, it's the curses and the blessings. So if you can't fulfill what God requires of you, what can you expect? Only curses. And uh, this is not an ideal place to be in, but this is the problem with every single one of us that we have an uncircumcised heart by nature. We can't fulfill what God requires of us. We can't please God. And so... If an uncircumcised heart is the problem, it makes sense that the solution to that is to circumcise your heart. And if that problem is taken care of, you have the result, uh, which is that you're able to fill, fulfill what the Lord requires of you, which is that covenant loyalty, that loyal love. So there are two main passages that deal with this. Uh, and one of them is here in chapter 10. So let's look there at chapter 10. And we'll come back to this here in a little bit as well. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. This is the divine remedy for the problem. Circumcise your heart. And then we also have something similar show up at the end of the book of Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 30. So if you would turn there, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. But here it looks a little different. And it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So, we'll, we'll come back to these passages, but the solution is to circumcise your heart. So what is a circumcision of the heart? And if you think about it, circumcision of the heart is really a metaphor within a metaphor, right? Because the heart is a metaphor, right? The biblical writers take this idea of the heart. The heart is, you know, the organ that pumps blood, and it's really important to life. It's, uh, you know, inside you. It's very central. And what they do is they apply that then to meaning everything that's really important to who you are. It's your control center. It's, it's your life. It's who you are. And then we think of circumcision. Well, circumcision is something very physical that takes place. But at the same time, now the biblical writers use circumcision and apply it to the heart. And what we need to think through is, what is this circumcision? And then what does it mean to have a circumcised heart? So let's consider circumcision for a, a brief uh, amount of time here. So there are three dynamics of circumcision that I think are important as we come to this idea of circumcision of the heart. And the first one is just this, that circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Where have we seen circumcision before? We see it first in Genesis chapter 17 when the Lord is giving Abraham a covenant and he gives circumcision to be the sign of it. And so all of Abraham's descendants after him would have this sign of circumcision. And what that means is that they are a part of the covenant community. They are part of the physical descendants of Abraham and within this covenant. But that doesn't mean that anything has happened on the inside. The physical 
representation doesn't necessarily mean that anything has happened on the inside. So that's the first one, and that, that's the, probably the most significant one throughout Scripture. A second one, though, is that circumcision is a royal and a priestly consecration to the Lord. And so I want you to think for a moment. Uh, was there any discussion or, or reasoning given to Abraham why circumcision was the sign of the covenant? There's not. And if you look throughout the rest of the Old Testament, nothing is given as to why circumcision was chosen as the sign of the, of the covenant. A lot of meaning is put onto circumcision, but not why it was chosen specifically. And so what we kind of have to do if we want to figure this out a little bit is we look to what circumcision meant to the people around Israel. It's going to be different to some degree. Israel will make developments, but it seems like the best thing uh, that we have is, the best parallel is the Egyptian practice of circumcision. And what's really interesting there is that circumcision was not given to the Egyptians like every single person, but it was first off only males and then also only those ones that were in the royal or the priestly uh, functions. And also what it signified was that they were dedicated, that they were consecrated to their gods. Now, if that really is the background to the circumcision that Abraham gets, this is really significant because now think about one of the differences. Who is given that circumcision uh, with, with the Egyptians? Only certain people. But then you go to the nation of Israel, who's given, who is given the, the uh, circumcision? Everybody. Everybody in the nation. And if you have that, that idea of a royal and priestly consecration to the Lord, do we find that somewhere in Scripture? That the fact that the whole nation was to be that? And we do, and we see that in Exodus 19, 4-6. And that's one of those passages that I've mentioned a few times that you really need to have in your back pocket. But the Lord promised Israel that if they would obey the covenant, they would be three things. The Lord's own possession, a holy people, and also a kingdom of priests. The whole nation, not just some of them, but the entire nation as a whole. And that is really significant. And so if, we, if, if that is true, then circumcision is this, this consecration to the Lord um, and, and to his service, a royal and priestly service to the Lord. It, all right, and then the final dynamic that we need to think through about circumcision is this, which is really talking about uncircumcision. When we get to the Bible, or, or when we get through the Old Testament, uncircumcision is seen as an impediment. Uncircumcision, if something is uncircumcised in the Old Testament, it's seen as not being able to do the thing that it's supposed to be doing. And so there's a couple of examples here, uh, Exodus 6, 12, and 30, uh, Moses says that he has uncircumcised lips, so how can he go before Pharaoh? Well, we know from other passages of Scripture what Moses is meaning there, right? What did he say to the Lord whenever the Lord first commissioned him to go to Egypt? He said, no, I don't want to go. Uh, and he gave several reasons, but one of them was that I'm slow of speech, I'm not eloquent. And so later he says, I'm uncircumcised of lips, 
My lips aren't able to do the, do the thing that they're supposed to do. We see it also uh, with uncircumcised ears in Jeremiah 6.10. And there it's really interesting because it says, because Jeremiah has this ministry to the people of Israel, and he t- says that they are uncircumcised, they have uncircumcised ears, they cannot hear. And so uncircumcised ears is directly in parallel with they cannot hear. And so what that's saying is uncircumcised ears, it's like they have foreskinned ears, they are not able to hear. And there, it's also kind of a double poke because it also means that they're acting as if they are not part of the covenant community. They are acting as if they're uncircumcised Gentiles. So it's a double poke there. But uncircumcision as an impediment. There's another one in Leviticus 19.23. When, when Israel was to go into the land and they were to plant trees, they couldn't eat the fruit for three years. And it says something interesting. It says that they were to regard the trees as uncircumcised. And so the idea is that each year before the fruits ripen, you pluck them off. And all you gardeners may have to help me out here. But from what I've seen, that is to be for the health of the tree later on, that you'll produce better fruit later on. And so it's the idea of circumcising that tree so that it can produce better fruit. And this is really significant because when we go to Leviticus 19, excuse me, 26, 40 to 41, and you can turn there, it tells us that our heart is uncircumcised. So this is the problem. So 40 to 41, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity. The problem which led, and this is in the uh, curses um, in Leviticus 26, The problem was that they had uncircumcised hearts. Their hearts were not able to do the thing that hearts are supposed to do. And when we look at Deuteronomy, what is a heart supposed to do? Love the Lord. Love God with everything in the heart. But we have uncircumcised hearts and we can't produce the fruit that we're supposed to. So again, the solution then is to to have a circumcised heart that's able to produce the fruit that hearts are supposed to, which is to give this loyal love to the Lord. So let's go back to our two main passages here of Deuteronomy 10, 16 and Deuteronomy chapter 30. So uh, I've got this up here on the screen Because this is, I think it's helpful to understand kind of the flow of the passages and where Deuteronomy 10.16 is in context and also 30 verse 6 is in context. In Deuteronomy 10.16, what we've got is, if you remember whenever we went through it, uh, those general stipulations, the Lord was pointing out, he he told them, don't be arrogant, don't think that you accomplished all, all of this. And then what he does is he basically lists out 
all of their sins, all of their terrible failures, all of their covenant unfaithfulness. And what all of that was showing was it's the Lord who was doing it all, not Israel. It wasn't, the Lord's, it wasn't Israel's righteousness. It was the Lord who was doing it all. And so what we're seeing is in Deuteronomy 10, 16, what comes before this is their past unfaithfulness. They failed at doing what the Lord required. And so once again, he comes into Deuteronomy 10, 16 and says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And so the solution to all this covenant unfaithfulness is to circumcise your heart. And then if you go to 30 verse 6, it's a very similar context, but instead of a past covenant failure, you have a future covenant failure being described for Israel. Uh, Notice 30 verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind and so forth. And so it's expecting that the curses are going to come upon Israel because the Lord knows that they have rebellious and uncircumcised hearts. But he gives a promise in verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So we won't get into absolutely everything with this, but I do want to point out this tension or this reality that in 1016, we've got a command, circumcise your hearts. Like that is your responsibility. You must circumcise your heart in order to uh, be able to fulfill what the Lord has required of you. But then when we get to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it's not a command anymore, it's a promise that in the future the Lord would circumcise the heart of the nation of Israel. So what I see here is this, this dynamic that we see in other uh, doctrines as well, this idea of human responsibility, you must do something, but at the same time, it's the Lord's sovereignty. And that's what we looked at earlier, that um, the heart is who you truly are. And it's your thoughts, your emotions, your everything. And yet at the same time, the Lord is sovereign over those things. And we have a similar situation here where you must circumcise your heart, but at the same time, it is the Lord who is going to do it. So as we look at Deuteronomy 10, 16, uh, and, and we look at what does it mean to have a circumcised heart? The scriptures say that it is to cease being stubborn. It is to be humble. And we see that in Deuteronomy 10, 16, that if, they're un, if they um, circumcise their hearts and cease being stubborn. So this is, this is a humbleness. This is humbling yourself before the Lord. In Leviticus 26, 41, he says, uh, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled before me and uh, they repent of their sins, essentially. So circumcision of the heart is this humbling before God. It's also repentance. It's turning away uh, from your sin. In Jeremiah 4, 1 to 4, which also talks about circumcision of the heart, uh, it describes it as repentance. Again, a turning uh, away from sin and a turning back to God. It's a removal of the detestable things, the idols in your life. 
And then it's also giving loyalty to the Lord. And this one especially, if we go back to our you know, three dynamics of circumcision, it's, it's the sign of the covenant, it's a consecration to the Lord, and it's a removal of something that's obstructing. It's a removal of an impediment. Jeremiah 4, 1 to 4 shows this, that it's a turning away from sin. It's removing that which is detestable. And you, if you think about circumcision, what is it? It's a cutting off of the flesh and it's a casting it away. And we have that same kind of concept here. And it is a loyalty to the Lord. It is a consecration to God. And then what we see, especially in Deuteronomy 36, that points forward to the new, new covenant. And we have those passages, the really significant ones are Ezekiel 36, 26, and Jeremiah 31, 31, all the way to 34. But uh, again, there it is describing something that the Lord himself does. It's not something that we can do. We're commanded to do it. We have a part in it, but it's the Lord who's doing it. And it's described there as replacing the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. A heart of stone is one that is hard, <laughs> right? Which is what was described as these uncircumcised hearts being stubborn, stiff-necked, hardened, um, and replacing that with a heart of flesh. Something that responds to God. Something that loves God. And you think about how that describes what we've been looking at in Deuteronomy. A heart of flesh is one that can love God from the heart. One that can give to God that covenant loyalty. And then also, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 is another one of those new covenant passages. And it speaks of the law being written on the heart. So again, think about what that um, primary responsibility of the heart was. Love God with all your heart, and also uh, these commands will be on your heart. They will com control your heart. And so in this, we see uh, the law being the controlling factor of the heart. All of these things are things that are promised in the new covenant that find their uh, fulfillment when Christ inaugurates that new covenant with his blood. So, let, let's, let's do a summary here. And uh, this one's a little bit longer. Uh, and then we'll uh, consider some of the applications to this. So, although Deuteronomy assumes that man in his natural state, um, which is being uncircumcised of heart, will not be able to fulfill God's requirements. But it also describes the solution to this problem, which is to circumcise the heart. Circumcision of the heart removes the impediment to this covenant loyalty, and it consecrates one to the Lord. Heart circumcision is both commanded and promised by the Lord. And so what we get is that uh, it seems that there is both human responsibility and divine sovereignty involved in this. And the result is that the circumcised heart is truly able to fulfill the requirement of Deuteronomy, which is to give covenant loyalty to the Lord from the heart. And this heart circumcision it was, is what was promised to the nation of Israel as a whole in the future. That's Deuteronomy 30 and also the New Covenant stuff. But is also a reality in all believers in Christ now. If you are a believer in Christ, when you put your faith in Christ, when you humble yourself before God, 
You have this take place, this circumcision of the heart. You have the heart of stone removed and you have a heart of flesh put in you. And the result is that you can actually obey the Lord from the heart. You can love him with all of your heart. Even though we we still sin for this uh, in this life. So let's bring this down to to some concluding application here. First off is to praise God for his holiness and to thank him for his grace. We praise God for his holiness because he has a high standard. You must love him with absolutely everything that you are and obey all of his commandments, right? That is a high bar. That is a high standard that we all fall short of. So we praise God for his holiness. He's not like us, but we also thank him for his grace because we couldn't do it. And so God had to do a work in us. He had to take initiative and circumcise our hearts so that we could. So first off, that we would be saved and also that we would be able to obey him. And so if you're an unbeliever, know that there are, cir- that there are consequences for falling short of God's glory and his standard. So run to Christ for salvation and accept his grace. And then finally, for the believers here, um, know what God has done for you. Know that you do have a circumcised heart, which means you actually are able to love the Lord your God. And you're able to please him. But what this requires is that his word be on your heart. And what that means is that his word is the controlling factor of everything that you are, everything that you do, in your internal dialogues, in your conversations, in your feelings, in your desires, in all of your decisions. You let the word of God be what controls all of that. And so that is a theology of the heart in the book of Deuteronomy. And as we come to the Lord's table, we are celebrating the fact that God, that Christ inaugurated this new covenant, made this available to every single one of us. And so we thank him for his grace and we, rem- we remember what he has done. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time to look into your word. Lord, we recognize that we fall so far short of your holy standard, that we are sinners, that in our natural state we can do nothing to please you. We have nothing to offer to you. But Lord, we thank you that you didn't leave us in our hopeless estate, but Lord, that you provided a solution, um, that you would have grace upon us, to take out the heart of stone and to replace it with a heart of flesh. Lord, we thank you. Father, we ask that um, as we leave here today, that we would be reminded of the fact that if we are true believers, Lord, you have actually given us the ability to love you and to serve you. And especially, Lord, as we have your spirit to enable us, to empower us, Lord, may we be a people of the book. May we be a people who are controlled in every aspect of who we are by your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.